Well, good morning. It's a great time to be a sports fan in Portland, isn't it? I mean, did you see everyone out for the Kentucky Derby yesterday? Real big sports fan. I had to have someone explain to me what happened with the Blazers, so if anyone needs to cheer, you can get it out. No one? All right. Well, my name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you, I would love to do so uh, after the service. Seems like we've got a lot of visitors here. Uh, we're very glad that you're with us this morning. We're going through a series uh, during the Easter season called Encounters with Jesus. And so we're uh, continuing this morning with this passage in John chapter 5. Would you pray along with me as we get started? Jesus, we just sang to you that we need help. Even in our belief, even when we don't have to do anything but trust, we need help. I pray that this morning, if we have been struggling, if we have found ourselves unable to repent, if we have found ourselves unable to believe, unable to sense your pleasure and your love for us, I ask that we would find ourselves being wrapped in your arms again, that we would hear your voice calling out to us as our shepherd. We pray that as we hear from your word, as we come to your table in a moment, that we would be uh, fed and satisfied by you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you've ever seen Martin Scorsese's film, The Departed, uh, you may be familiar with hidden identities. In fact, upon first viewing, I had a difficult time knowing who I was supposed to be rooting for. It's a story about a mob boss named Frank Costello in Boston who's played by Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson's character introduces a young boy to the life of crime. And as this boy grows up, he becomes the character played by Matt Damon named Colin Sullivan. And he actually gets placed into the Massachusetts State Police as a mole. And so he's there and he's able to warn Frank about any sort of movements that the police might have coming against him. But at the same time, there's another young man growing up in the same part of Boston named Billy Costigan, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He also joins the Massachusetts State Police. But he gets placed by his superiors as a mole in Frank Costello's mob family. And so for the entire movie, you have these two moles in each other's organizations, and they keep getting whiffs of each other. And they're almost stepping on each other's shadows, and they get more and more confused as they try to figure out who the guy is that's giving away their information to the enemy. And then right at the end, and I'm going to try to say this without spoiler alerts in case you haven't seen it, but right at the end, you as the audience member experience this confusion as you realize along with these two characters that Frank Costello, the mob boss, is also not who you thought he was. And the confusion is just compounded. You sort of wander away wondering, who's the good guy? Our story this morning is one of a somewhat hidden identity, and there's a deep amount of confusion that flows out of that. So as we look at this encounter with Jesus, we'll do so by exploring the crippling confusion of the crowds, the compassionate clarity of the Creator, 
and grace, grace, and more grace. If you were following along closely as Brooke was reading our passage this morning, you'll notice that our text itself has some confusion. Verse 4 is missing. And in fact, in the earliest manuscripts, there was no verse 4. I mean, there were no verse numbers, but, but our translators have decided to take it out because they, they felt like maybe it wasn't legitimate. And that's because later on in, in the transmission of all these translations being made, someone inserted some words in there to help us understand a little bit more about what was going on in this scene. Because here we have Jesus entering Jerusalem, and he, he hangs out at this place near the temple called the Sheep Gate. And this is where the lambs that were headed for sacrifice at the temple would come and be washed. They would be ceremonially cleansed by the priesthood at this pool. And because this was a place where ritual cleanliness would happen, it was believed, and and this is what the the person who who wrote in verse 4 tried to help us with, it was believed that the angel of the Lord would come down maybe once a year and stir up the waters. And if you could get into the water first, you would be healed. And frankly, we're we're not sure. It could be that it really happened. It could be that it was superstition. Either way, the poolside is packed with people in suffering. John tells us there is a great number. And the man that Jesus encounters among the crowd isn't really defined for us. John just tells us that he's an invalid. He, he, he doesn't give us anything more than that. And I think that's actually very intentional because he's trying to highlight for us a sort of murky picture, the sort of confusion that this man has toward Jesus. But what John does tell us is that this man has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. The average life expectancy of a man at this time was 40 years. And this man has been lying by this poolside for a long, long time. We're told that Jesus sees this man And the force of the text is actually stronger than our translation suggests because John tells us that Jesus sees the man and he knows. He doesn't learn about the man's suffering. He knows intimately that the man has been suffering for many years. And so Jesus asks the man what seems to us at best to be an obvious question, at at worst maybe an insensitive one. He says, do you want to be well? Do you have the will to be made well? Jesus doesn't say, tell me what you want most. He doesn't say, tell me what happened or lie back on a couch and tell me your troubles. He asks a very pointed, very clear yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? And the man's answer is very revealing because rather than exclaiming, yeah, he just starts complaining. He says, well, I don't have anyone to help me into the pool and so by the time the water gets stirred up, there's someone else already there and so I can't, you know, what am I supposed to do? And much like the characters in The Departed, this man is confused. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He can't see past the water. This man has actually confused the water with the power of God itself. He thinks that it's the water that is going to save him. The water is what's going to heal him. And he's so fixated on the water, and he's so fixated on the fact that he's been hindered from getting himself to where he needs to be that he's been unable to achieve healing and salvation for himself, that he doesn't even think to answer, yes, I want to be made well. But Jesus cuts right past him with his response and heals him. We'll circle back to that in a moment, but for now, I want us to keep following this man and, and the people that he encounters as John continues to lay out this story for us. And John is a masterful storyteller. 
because he's set up this whole account. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. They're at the sheep gate. There's a lot of sick people. This confused guy gets healed right away, and then he just sort of ends. You can almost hear the dun-dun-dun. It was the Sabbath. Jesus has already been having some run-ins with religious people with regard to the Sabbath. And so we know something, something's about to happen. According to the oral tradition of the religious leaders in Israel, it was against the law to carry your bed on the Sabbath if it was empty. If you were in it, you could be carried. They allowed for that. Now, the Mosaic law, the actual Jewish scriptures don't say anything about this, but, but as people were trying to kind of figure out, okay, how do we lead moral lives? How do we do the right thing? Do what God wants us to do. They landed on this no bed carrying interpretation just to be safe. And so the Jewish leaders who, who most likely recognize this man as an invalid are so confused by their religious commitments that, that they don't see the fact that he's been healed. They just say, oh, by the way, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you from carrying your mat. And then it, it kind of sounds like the man is blame shifting a little, doesn't it? He says, oh, well, the guy who healed me, he's the one who told me to pick it up and carry it. Which is at least accurate, if not cowardly, potentially. But do you notice what the religious establishment says back to him? He says, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. And they say, who's this guy who told you to pick it up and walk? Notice that they don't say, who's the guy who healed you? (laughs) Healed you? You've been healed? Talk to us about that. Not by the water, by, by just a guy? No. It's just, who's the guy who told you to pick up your mat? Because that's sort of against the rules here. And we realize that you've been sick for your entire life, and we're not quite sure what just happened here, but you're not allowed to chew gum in the building. So, <laughs> see, the man has been so intent on the water, so intent on his own suffering, his own attempts and failures, that even though his life has now been completely and forever changed, when they ask, who's the guy that did this? He has no idea. It's as if he didn't even really interact with Jesus. And so later, Jesus catches up with him at the temple and he says to him, look, you've been healed. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, which frankly sounds a little strange. It could be that Jesus is attributing this man's disease and illness to sin, which may or may not be true. Or it just sort of sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? Sort of, I hate for anything bad to happen to you, fella. And then it gets even weirder because it sounds like the guy like, takes it as a threat and, and goes and tattles to the establishment and says, oh, it was that guy. It was Jesus. And this has actually been a point of debate with, with scholars that have studied this passage over centuries about how are we supposed to understand this man that was healed? Is he, is he a cowardly tattletale? And that's why when he, when he learns of Jesus' identity, he immediately goes and tells the establishment so they'll get him in trouble? Or is he actually coming to faith and repentance and telling the good news that it was Jesus that healed him? And John doesn't really tell us. He doesn't make it very clear, and I think it's because he has other designs in mind in telling us this story, and we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, I would like us to see that the confusion of the man, of the individual, when he can't even answer the, the simple yes or no question, do you want to be healed? His confusion serves as a stand-in for the confusion of the crowd because John tells us that they begin to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
these things, being, you know, miraculously healing people, they persecute him. Just as the man was so transfixed on the water being his source of healing, and he couldn't get past it, so the Jewish religious establishment is so fixated on law-keeping as their means for health and salvation that they cannot see the healer and Savior is in their midst. The one thing that the Jewish leaders did see with absolute clarity, though, is that the claims that Jesus makes about himself in this, in this scene are incredibly blasphemous because he is claiming to be equal with God. John is one of the most explicit gospel writers on this account, and he, he tells us at the end of his gospel that he wrote these things down so that those who read them would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is divine. And this chapter begins a series of claims that will go throughout the book of John by Jesus that he is not only the Son of God in a way that is completely unique, but that he is actually equal with God. And and what John tells us already here in chapter 5 is that it's this claim right here that gets him murdered. In fact, throughout this whole story, John casts Jesus in this very clear-eyed creator role. He enters into the pool area where all the disabled are laying, and he picks out one man from the crowd, and he knows him. He knows how long he's been suffering. And when he says to him, do you want to be made well, he does so not because he doesn't know the answer, but to reveal how confused this man is. But even in spite of the confusion, what he says to the man is, get up, rise. And it is in that spoken word that the man's healing is effected. And then John says, and the day on which this happened, it was the Sabbath. And if we, if we had been reading John's gospel all the way along from the beginning, we would remember that he started his gospel account of Jesus with a creative retelling of the Genesis 1 story, of the creation story. He says that God speaks creation into existence, and then it's the Sabbath, just like it's happening here. Jesus speaks out healing, and it happens, and it's the Sabbath. And John is telling us that this is the same person that I talked to you about in the beginning. This is the word who speaks and it comes to pass. The word who was in the beginning with God. The word who is God. The one through whom all things were made. The one in whom is life and the light of all mankind. So when the Jewish leaders come at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and he tells them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. They get so mad at him, mad enough to kill him for saying this because he's not just saying that he's a son of God. People in Jewish history had said that before. He's using a sort of logical parallelism. When he says, my father is working and I too am working, the Jewish leaders pick up on the idea that that all Orthodox Jewish people believed that even though it says that God rested on the Sabbath, he's the one who sustains the universe. And so in many ways, he has to keep working. So for Jesus to say that he too is working in this way is to suggest that he is absolutely equal, parallel, that he too is God. And in a few short sentences, Jesus has given theologians enough to chew on for years of inquiry and discussion about what it means the Son can do nothing by himself but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. And there's more parallel association here. What Jesus is saying is that whatever the Father does, the Son does, because whoever the Father is, the Son is. 
The mere fact that Jesus claims to have seen God itself is blasphemous. No man has seen God and lived, not even Moses, the greatest prophet that Israel had ever known. And then Jesus really just drives the nail into the coffin. He he tells them that just as the Father has life in himself and gives life to whom he is pleased to give it, so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. As in, that life is his to give. Even in the midst of the confusion of the crowds, even in the midst of the confusion of this man, Jesus has compassionate clarity as the creator of all things. And he shows us that he has the power to set things right, to make things whole. St. Augustine was an early church father and a priest and theologian, and when he read this passage in John's Gospel, he he had a very imaginative sort of way of interpreting things. And so he he saw in, in this story that there were those five colonnades, those five porticos, and he thought that those represented the first five books of Scripture, what we call the Pentateuch, the five books of Mosaic law, which, which in Jesus' day comprised much of the Hebrew scriptures. And so in, in Augustine's brilliant imagination, he sees the poolside surrounded by these five porches. And within that surrounding is all the sick, all the lame, all the blind. And what he says is, is that those people represent the nation of Israel who were under bondage to the law. They thought that they could be made whole by the very thing that was keeping them captive. And all they needed was was the baptism of the pool that they couldn't get into. And he sees that it's a baptism of life and healing only because it's a baptism into Jesus. And what Augustine is picking up on in in his sort of imaginative rereading of this text is that John is illustrating in this story not just the divinity of Jesus, but also the grace with which he operates. That he has come to actually free these people that were held captive by the law, by the very thing they thought was going to make them whole. You see, it's unclear whether or not the man in this story ever realizes who Jesus is. It's unclear if he ever really gets that he had misplaced his hopes in the water, and it's unclear if he really comes to faith and recognizes Jesus as God, but he's healed nonetheless. Jesus initiates. Jesus completes. It's grace from beginning to end. Because grace is love that has absolutely nothing to do with the beloved and everything to do with the lover. Paul Zoll is a theologian and pastor who has been trying to come to terms with grace for decades, and he says this, Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Friends, it's grace that Jesus moves past our confusion about him, past our inability to see past our own suffering and our own preconceived ideas about what will make us well. It is grace that Jesus moves past our confusion and our inability to see past our law-keeping. It's grace that Jesus removes the burden of having to be a perfect parent perfect child, a perfect spouse, a perfect friend, a perfect citizen. It's grace that Jesus can reach out and give healing in a moment when we still don't even know him. Some of you this morning may be unable to see Jesus clearly because of just years of suffering, 
perhaps even at the hands of people that were supposed to love and protect you. And you you have become so fixed on this one thing that's supposed to make it better, and it never does, and yet you can't see anything else. Some of you may be here this morning unable to see Jesus clearly because of your law-keeping, and it really doesn't matter if it's the Christian version of law-keeping or the Portland version of law-keeping. You're exhausted. You're absolutely exhausted, and you feel like you, you can't see through yourself. This story reminds us that encounters with Jesus aren't about us getting settled and sorted right away. In fact, at the beginning, it feels like the exact opposite. But what John is telling us is that if Jesus really is the God of the universe, then he's our only hope. Ultimately, it is grace that Jesus, the God of all there is, has life in himself and gives it to those whom he pleases, raising the dead. As St. Paul tells us, we are those dead. We've been dead in our transgressions and sins, and yet Jesus raises us just as his Father raised him from the dead, and we will see that it is just grace, grace, and more grace from beginning to end. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to confess our faith and come to your table in a moment. I ask that that we would all be reminded that it's not even our ability to articulate clearly who you are, but it's your ability to cut past our confusion and heal us and give us life that allows us to stand and confess our faith as a community, our trust that you have healed us and you will continue to heal the broken parts of our world. I ask that this would be made real to us in your, in your table. Amen.